Genesis, okay. Genesis 30. Psalms, okay. Are you doing the uh, chronological reading, Tom, or just kind of happen to be in there? Oh, cool. Yeah, if, well, if you're reading along with the chronological plan, we got some good psalms today. Morning, guys. We have um, Psalm 22 is on the list today, and Psalm 23 is on the list today. Uh, I can't remember the exact range of it, but just an incredible group of psalms this morning. Uh, very encouraging. You know, I was thinking about, as you, it's really interesting that if you look at, I'm going to mention this a little bit in the sermon today, that if you look at Jesus on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a number of things in that psalm that, that really reflect on the crucifixion. But there's also a sense in which Jesus enacts Psalm 23 on the cross. You know, we read about, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus on the cross walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We read about the sun going dark in the middle of the day for three hours while Jesus died on the cross. I think that's a really direct connection between Psalm 22, which he's quoting, and then Psalm 23, which he's experiencing uh, on the cross. So great, it's great Bible reading. Read the Psalms. Uh, read wherever you are in the scripture. It's always encouraging, and um, it's good. Good stuff. Oops, I think my computer fell asleep. Uh-oh, let's look. I even bored my computer. Let's see. Yeah, am I plugged in? Hmm, let's see. Oh, no, let's see. Battery's low, and I do not... Apparently, I'm not plugged in. You could plug me in directly to the wall, maybe. That would work. Well, let's see. Let's see, let's see. Uh, well, it's rebooting here, so let's see. I apologize for that. Technical difficulties. Man, I think I've had every technical difficulty that there has been to have this morning. This is one of those days the, the printer ran out of ink and all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And Okay, we back? Hey, there we are. See, good week for controlled chaos, is it not? Thank the Lord for the book of Micah. Well, let's jump in. I want to begin with a quote from the often irascible Martin Luther, one of our favorite reformers. He said this. Oops, let's see. Did he say it? The prophets have a strange way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Do you ever find that to be the case when you're reading the prophets? You're thinking, wait a minute, who is he talking about? And who is he condemning? And then all of a sudden we're over here and we're over there. Sometimes the book of Micah can feel like controlled chaos. Throughout the seven chapters of the book, the prophet Micah jumps back and forth between judgment and then mercy, and then he's back to judgment, and then there's mercy again. And it can be a little bit hard to follow the transitions between one section of the book to the next. In their book, The Introduction to the Old Testament, which I use a lot as I'm preparing these uh, talks, I use commentaries, The Introduction to the Old Testament, ESV Study Bible, very helpful. Uh, Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman observe, 
it's easy to get lost in the mix of his judgment and salvation speeches. The structure is hard to fathom. Yet it's also worth noting that the book of Micah contains some of the most memorable passages of scripture in all of the Old Testament. Somebody read for me Micah 4, verses 3 and 4. You can either read it from the screen or from your Bible. Have you, any of you heard that spiritual, you know, where it, it really references this? You know, they ain't going to study war no more. That's right from the prophet Micah. How about this one? This is a very famous one. Somebody read Micah 5, verse 2. Now, does anybody recognize that, that verse as part of the Christmas story? We'll talk about this a little bit later, but Matthew, is Matthew of the four uh, writers of the Gospels, Matthew was more concerned with addressing his Gospel to a Jewish audience. And so he quotes very frequently from the Old Testament, and one of the first places that he goes to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the promised king, the shepherd king, we'll talk about that a little bit later, is by quoting the book of Micah, which, as we'll see as we study this, was held in very high esteem among the people of Israel. It was one of their most important books. Micah and Isaiah were sort of the one and one A in terms of their go-to books in the Old Testament. What about Micah 6, 8? Have you ever heard that verse before or heard that thought before? So that, again, comes right from the book of Micah. Well, this morning we're going to discover who wrote Micah and roughly when it was written. We'll spend most of our time, though, looking at the content, some of the themes. We'll do a little bit of literary analysis. We'll look at kind of the, the way that Micah writes and why his writing is so memorable. Uh, by the time we're done, we'll want to answer these three questions. Uh, what does this book tell us about God? What does it tell us about our sin? And then what does it tell us about God's plan for redemption, which is ultimately accomplished through Jesus, our Redeemer? Okay, that's always a good uh, sort of rule of thumb whenever you're reading any book of the Bible, but specifically an Old Testament book, and you want to try to understand what you're reading, just ask yourself, what does this passage tell, tell us about God? What does it tell Tell us about me, sin, my finite condition, my fallen condition. And then what does it tell us about Jesus who came to redeem me from my finitude, from my fallenness, from my sin? Always good questions. And we'll try to address some of those this morning. All right, let's jump in. Who was Micah? Author and date. Now, the very first verse of the book identifies the author as Micah of Morasheth. The name Micah means who is like the Lord. 
It is a rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord? And Morasheth was a small hillside village located about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now, we suspect, based on the contents of the book, that Micah did most of his ministry in the city of Jerusalem, and that's probably why uh, the author or the, uh, the uh, compiler, whoever compiled the, these sayings, added that little detail about Morasheth, which is just outside the city of Jerusalem. The first verse also tells us that Micah ministered during the reign of three Judean kings. Jotham, who reigned from 750 to 732 B.C. Ahaz, who ruled from 732 to 716. And then Hezekiah, between 715 and 786. Now, who, if I were to ask you, is the mo most famous of those three kings? Who would, who would you say? Hezekiah. Why was Hezekiah the most positively notable of these three kings? Yeah, he was a reformer. He was a reformer. He did many things to bring the people of Israel back into alignment with God's word and with the covenant promises. He rejected the ways of his sinful predecessors, particularly Ahaz, who was probably the worst Worst of these three. Now, King Ahaz reigned for 16 years. He's that middle king. Uh, now, assuming two years of service pre-Ahaz under King Jotham and two years post-Ahaz under King Hezekiah, then we can say that Micah prophesied for roughly 20 years. You know, it might have been shorter than that. It might have been longer than that. It was at least 18, assuming he was one year under the previous king and one year after the, the king. But so 16 plus at least two, maybe four years. So let's call it around 20 years. So he had about a two-decade run uh, of prophesying. In Micah 1 verse 6, God said, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley. Did Micah's prophecy come true? Did Samaria fall? Did that, did that happen? Yes, it did happen. When did the prophecy come true? What year? You remember? Well, think about where Samaria was. Samaria is the capital city of where? The northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Who remembers when the northern kingdom fell? Do you remember? 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls to uh, the Assyrians. And so this prophecy was given in chapter 1, verse 6, before 722 BC. Before the fall of Samaria, Micah prophesied the fall. Now, Micah is mentioned just once outside the book of Micah, and that's in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 26, verses 17 through 19. When King Jehoiakim came to power in Judah, some of the priests and false prophets attempted to put the prophet Jeremiah to death. The elders of the city interceded on Jeremiah's behalf by showing that Jeremiah's prophecies of doom and destruction and judgment were perfectly aligned with Micah's prophecies of judgment. Micah was a respected prophet's 
prophet. And so Jeremiah, this got cut off, Jeremiah's uh, prophecy was seen as valid. Does that make sense? They used Micah as a source of authority and said, oh no, Jeremiah is not saying anything different than Micah said previously. Somebody read Jeremiah 26, 17 through 19. Now, do you see the logic of what I'm saying here? Um, the point is that Micah is, is one of the minor prophets. And we call them minor prophets because their books are shorter than the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. But he was not considered an unimportant or minor person in the history of, of Israel. They looked to him as a trusted, respected source of authority. It would be like if you know, our current president said something and everyone said, oh, he's wrong and it's wrong. And then somebody pointed out and said, hey, no, no, what he's saying is exactly in line with what Abraham Lincoln said in this speech or what George Washington said or Thomas Jefferson. They would appeal to a greater authority in order to show that the current person is, is valid. Does that make sense? And so in Jeremiah's day, they appealed to Micah as a source of authority. So a well-respected prophet. All right, Liter let's do a little literary analysis. What happens in the book of Micah? Micah is a difficult book to outline because the book is believed to be an anthology. The oracles of judgment that we find in the book aren't presented in necessarily chronological order. Who can tell me what an anthology is? Are there any books, other books of the Bible that we believe to be anthologies? What is an anthology? A collection of works. Good. What are some collections of works that we find in the Bible? Book of Psalms. Proverbs. So these are kind of uh, collections of sayings, not necessarily like a strict historical chronological order of things. Good. Now here's an, uh, here's an attempt to outline the book. Again, I based this on Dillard and Longman just to give you an idea of kind of what we find in the book. In chapters 1 through 5, we have the first round of judgment and salvation. First, we have judgment against the sins of Israel and Judah, followed by God's word of hope in verses, uh, chapters 4 and 5. Then we have a second round of judgment and salvation in chapters 6 and 7. First, uh, God, God's dispute with Israel, followed by God's judgment against Israel's social sins. And then Micah laments Israel's condition. And then finally, we have psalms of hope and of praise. And so if you were to read the book of Micah, you would probably find most of your encouraging passages in chapters 4 and 5. There are others, as we'll see, 
But chapters 4 and 5 are really kind of the gospel center of the book, of, of this uh, book, which is seven chapters long. All right, literary style. Who here loves puns? Who here speaks ancient Hebrew? Anyone? Just me? Okay. Well, if you answered yes to both of those questions, you will be greatly entertained by Micah's use of puns and double meanings. And if you answered don't no, then don't worry. That's why I am here. Okay? Here is a literal translation of Micah chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, courtesy of James Moffat. I'm going to read you his translation to kind of give you a sense of the way that the original readers of this book are reading in Hebrew would have heard it. Tell it not in Tellington. Wail it not in wailing. Dust manor will eat dirt. Dressy town flee naked. Safe hold will not save. Wallchester's walls are down. A bitter dose drinks bitter town. Toward Jerusalem, city of peace, the Lord sends war to welfare, a last farewell for trapping, trapped Israel's kings. Do you see? So all of the names of these cities, which we don't uh, perceive because they're written in Hebrew, are all used as sort of puns and double entendres and double meanings to show the disaster that's going to fall upon the land. Micah was a very clever writer as he expressed these things. Okay, let's jump into some theological themes in the book. Two big themes, really, sin and judgment, followed by grace. Okay, judgment, mercy, sin, salvation. First, we'll talk about sin. Micah is sometimes called the prophet of the poor or the social justice prophet because of his concern for Israel's treatment of the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. So let me read Micah 2, verses 2 and 3. They suffer continually from the street bent and poverty that would take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against his family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not So again, the, the sin that Micah is pointing out is the sin of exploiting the poor, of the rich uh, taking no uh, interest in, in, the, in the poor, the strong taking no interest in the weak. It's also worth noting that the religious leaders of Micah's day were condemned along with the civil leaders because the religious leaders refused to talk about sins that were taking place within the community of Israel. In Micah 2 verse 6, we read, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Here's a question. Do you think that the church should talk about social issues? Do you think the church should talk about political issues? Is there a difference between social issues and political issues? And if so, what's the difference? And then finally, uh, how can we pursue biblical justice or holiness or righteousness 
in our own community. All right, let's take those one at a time. Uh, do you think the church should talk about social issues? What are some social issues that you think the church should address? Abortion. Abortion. We're seeing a lot about Roe versus Wade in the news and possibly overturning that decision. Homelessness. Homelessness worth talking about for sure. Say something. The poor. How do we care for the poor? How, do, how does our church respond to the poor in our own community? Yeah, persecuted people in other parts of the world, Christians around the world who are being persecuted, and others maybe even who are not Christians. You know, we think about the terrible situation in the Ukraine and uh, the refugee crisis and things that have happened in Yemen and in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, refugee crises in Africa. There are many, many peoples who have been, who have been displaced by war all throughout the world. Um, what about, go ahead, say, marriage? marriage? Uh, who should be married? Is, is marriage something that should be between a, a man and a woman? Can anyone get married? What does that look like? Uh, what about political issues? Is it, should we be addressing political issues? If so, why? If not, why not? Is there a difference between social issues and political issues? What do you think? Yeah, that's true. They're, they, I would say probably uh, they are different, but a lot there can be some crossover too. Sometimes we say, well, you know, abortion, we can't really talk about that because that's a political issue and we don't want to get into the politics of it all. But I think it's fair to say that abortion is an example of a social issue, a, a social evil that has unfortunately become a political issue because uh, – one party is very uh, officially in their party platform is very aligned in favor of abortion and the other political party is very aligned against abortion. And so it's almost impossible to talk about abortion without being uh, divisive politically, even if that's not our intent. Does that make sense? Yeah, Ken. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Ken points out that we should have knowledge about these things so that we can pray for our leaders, which the Bible instructs us to do. Good. Good, good. Yes? Say it. Yeah, the, she was pointing out the example of, of Daniel. Uh, who was aware of what was happening in his culture and even uh, took sort of a, a moral stand against what the king was say, you know, saying, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, he paid a political price um, a, sort of for his refusal to go along with what the king was saying. Katie?
Not, not every political issue is a social issue. Uh, sometimes we might have uh, two people from the same party, uh, and we might say, well, I support this guy who's running in the primary, and I support this woman who's running in the primary. And do we as a church want to sort of stand up and say, well, this is the candidate that we support? I don't know. I think that that goes beyond the calling of what we have as a, a church. Again, social issues, poverty, homelessness, um, what role can we play as God's people, as the church, to address those issues? But we may, uh, the, in terms of the political sphere, uh, pe one, people, one group may have the idea, hey, we need to you know, give a man a fish. Another might say, well, we need to teach him to fish. And then we might say, well, maybe, can we do both? Maybe, yes, I don't know. And then there's like, you know, there's sort of, uh, at its best, it's not always the case, and I think, sadly, our political culture is very toxic and divisive, but at its best, people of good faith are trying to solve the same problems, but sometimes in different ways. Now, when that's the case, then injecting sort of a partisan politics into that can be unnecessarily divisive. But when we're talking about sort of a clear moral evil, uh, then I think that we do have a responsibility to stand up to this and, and to speak out about it. Uh, many, I think one of the great failings as I read church history is that many Christian ministers failed to speak up about the issue of slavery, which was legal in our, our nation and was very divisive in our nation. And, you know, some attempted to speak up about it, but did sort of halfway and half. And I think that that was um, a real missed opportunity for those men and women to take a bold stand against something which was evil. Well, in the Civil War, you had two different causes supporting this. One who supported slavery and one who supported anti-slavery. And if each of them prayed to God, there would be riots. So yeah, exactly. I, I, Yeah, that's, I think that that's a good point, is that we need to allow our commentary on these social issues to flow from the word rather than sort of deciding ahead of time, hey, we know what's important, and let's you know, cherry pick five Bible verses that seem to support that view. Um, so that's just a, I, I mentioned this only because Micah is, is a very much addressing social injustice, social sins, social problems in his world. Now, how about this? What are some ways that we can pursue biblical justice, biblical righteousness in our own community? What are some issues that we can address as a church to hurting people around us and in our city?
So what are some specific, when, I, when, I, when you say that, and I totally agree, if Jesus, saw, what, if Jesus looked at our community, whether it's Cantonment or the city of Pensacola, and said, and he kind of looked out at all the things that were happening, what are some issues or situations or people that you think God might want us to reach out to in the name of Jesus or to love in the name of Jesus or to serve in the name of Jesus? Feeding the hungry, Cindy? Yeah, give, getting kind of blessing bags together to, to reach out to people who might be hungry on the streets. Volunteering at Safe Harbor, you know, working with uh, young moms who have unexpected, uh, unplanned pregnancies. Uh, yeah, um, helping people who have financial needs. Um, Pastor David has been volunteering at uh, Safe Harbor, working with some of the dads, uh, doing mentoring for dads and sort of doing parenting classes for dads. Um, I've been recently, uh, it's very new, I just started this, but I've been uh, helping out at the Health and Hope Clinic, which is near uh, Olive Baptist Church there. That's great. You can uh, pray with all kinds of people there and talk to people and encourage them and share the gospel with them. And um, so that's, and this is a group of people who sort of fall within the cracks because they make too much money to qualify for some of the state health insurance plans, but they make not enough money to reasonably expect them to be able to afford uh, a monthly insurance premium on their own, and maybe they don't have insurance through their job. So Health and Hope really attacks this little sliver of people that kind of fall between the cracks. And obviously, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't be their dentist, and I can't be their doctor or their nurse, but I can give them the hope of Jesus and encourage them while they wait, because a lot of them, their physical symptoms are just one part of a very complex uh, matrix of sin in their life. Uh, I just got to say, I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. Moment. Joel went, so they asked Joel if he'd be the substitute chaplain at Health and Hope. And Tom looks around, he prays with him. He came home from leaving with these folks. He got to pray with like every single person there and share the gospel. He was so encouraged and excited. And I just think that that is what the Lord does when we're using our gifts to serve people. Hey, awesome. Yay. That is great. Praise God. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and uh, his brother, earthly brother, half-brother James, even points out that 
if we just say to people, hey, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing very loosely, you know, Jesus loves you and uh, God has a plan for your life, but then we don't address any of their physical needs, we've really only done half the job that God is calling us to do. And uh, last time I checked, a 50% on a test will get you an F. You know, so it's, uh, it's not good enough. We, we really need to care for people's physical needs as well, too. Yeah, John. John, it's a, I'm not sure I can put all, all this in the framework the right way, but it seems to me that a lot of the difficulties we have, both socially and politically, are the cause of what the church has done, of where the church has failed to share the gospel, to be the salt, right? To be, uh, to, to care about the poor. And that doesn't necessarily mean giving money or food, but getting the mold Yeah, I always think it's, um, and that's a, you're, I think you're very right. And I think that we can all look to Micah as an example of someone uh, who, in his day and at various times in his life, paid a very stiff price for speaking out about these wrongdoings that were happening. And if we speak out about them, we will pay a price too. We will alienate people. And that's, even though that may not, that is hopefully not our intention, it, it will happen. I think it's, Maybe it's helpful to say that I think it's maybe more effective or more helpful to talk about kind of policies and sins and things rather than, than people. Uh, because I think sometimes we say, well, hey, don't, for this, don't vote for this guy because he's got all these sins. And then somebody goes, well, the other guy has these sins. And then it kind of becomes an argument about who has more sins or what, which one is more sinful or which one is, you know less like Jesus than the other one is less than Jesus. You know, it's sort of like, they're both terrible, and which one is the worst? And I think rather than almost, I think it's almost helpful for us to kind of take a step back from kind of that 24-7 news cycle and to say, let's talk about issues. Let's talk about the issue of abortion. Let's talk about the issue of poverty. Let's talk about the issue of homelessness. Now, look at these two people and which of these two do you think is more in line with what the scripture would teach us about these issues? And, and then we can have discussions about it and say, well, I think this one's more in line. Okay, well, why do you think that? How about this one? And then I think between all of those conversations, uh, God's people can use their wisdom to say, okay, in an imperfect world where there's one king and the king is Jesus, 
and there's one standard, uh, which is the kingdom of God, uh, which of these candidates, you know, two candidates, seven candidates, whatever, most closely aligns with uh, God and his kingdom and Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus would have us to be in the world. I think that there's a little bit of liberty there, and we have to allow, I think, sometimes people to get it wrong in order to sort of teach and show and guide and direct. A lot of times, um, I think we, we weaken our witness when we very thoroughly align with flawed people uh, at the expense of aligning with even more flawed people. Does that make sense? Um, it's a difficult thing, but I'm kind of getting more into politics here myself. But what I'm saying is, oftentimes, unfortunately, we as a nation have aligned ourselves with one guy against another guy in another nation. They're both bad, and we somehow get stamped with all the bad things of the person that we aligned with. And then we're over here trying to say, no, no, but he was worse. He's better than the other guy who was way worse. And they're like, we don't want to hear it. You know, burn America. You know, it's like you've aligned with our dictator. And truthfully, we did align with the dictator. But it's hard to explain that he was not as bad as the other dictator. And so it could be a giant mess. Does, it, does that make sense? I'm probably talking in circles here. But uh, these are, you're right, they're difficult questions. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, people, yeah, compromise and people, pragmatism and all these different things. Well, yeah, Bruce. One thing we don't want to do is not believe and allow others to make that decision for us. Yeah, I think that that's, yeah, that's a good point. I think that God has uh, put us in this system, and I think part of our responsibility as citizens is to investigate this and to learn and to vote. And, and maybe even if... Uh, Maybe even to not vote if we don't take the time to think about these issues. If we just kind of walk in there and be like, well, I don't know, that guy seems nice. Click, 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 you know. Uh, yeah, then we're probably not making the best decision. Yes, Tim. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That um, you know, Paul. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, uh, totally agreeing with that, uh, one of the strongest witnesses of the church in the ancient world 
is, and we see this even in secular writings of the ancient world, is that Christians would love not only their own people, but also people in society. There's, I'm trying to remember the writer, whether it was Pliny the Younger or maybe um, Trajan. There was one of these writers who, who was saying um, they were trying to stamp out Christianity, and he's a governor, he's writing to the emperor, and he's saying, what are we going to do with all these Christians? Our, our pagan priests are doing nothing. They're not helping anybody. These Christians not only love their own people, they love our people. And as a result, people are, are kind of attracted to the message of the gospel and are kind of coming into the church. Uh, one of the earliest legacies of the church in the Roman Empire is that when children were left by the side of the road to die by their parents, that was kind of the ancient uh, practice of abortion. They would your baby would be born and you would just leave them by the road and abandon them, Christians would take these children in and raise them as their own children. And then when the plague came on the Roman Empire and all the pagans and all left, they fled to the countryside, the Christians stayed in the city to care for the sick, developed immunity to these viruses that were coming around, these plagues and things, uh, and then which aided the church growing. So I'm agreeing with you, and I'm saying that as we love as the church and as we live out the Christian ethic within the church, I think we need to do so in a way that the world can see and experience and even invite people into uh, that ethic of the kingdom of God. Does that, does that make sense? Is that aligned with what you think? Yeah, of course. Of course. All right, well, we're, gonna, we're running out of time, so we're going to jump back. Gary, you want to... Cap this out? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, but we were created, uh, redeemed in Christ for good works, that we should walk in, in the works of the Lord. All right, let's jump in. We're a little bit behind. We've got to speed up. All right, the people of Israel were also condemned for their idolatry. What is idolatry? Can modern people be guilty of idolatry? What does that look like in 2022? Elizabeth. Agree, yeah. That we can look to uh, presidents or senators or governors to say, "Hey, if we just put this guy in power or this gal in power, then this person will save us." Well, they can make some good decisions and maybe, you know, better decisions, but that's not our ultimate hope.
be, yeah. Yeah, good thoughts, good thoughts. Yes, Idol idolatry or? Idolatry. Okay. Good. Yeah, that's from the uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's to have anything else other than the true God, where we place our ultimate hope, or where we find our ultimate joy, where we find our ultimate uh, peace. And it can often be a good thing. Uh, your family, you know, your family is great. Love your family. We're blessed to have families. But is our family the ultimate hope? You're laughing. Why are you laughing? You do. Well, I know about my American family. It's pretty great. <laughs> so I know we sometimes have conflicts people in our family. Who, uh, no, people who uh, uh, are in a family or even in a certain setting, like, for example, when I was in seminary, I asked the pastor, how come these guys are so competitive and won't help each other out and stuff? And he said, well, it's like a family. They will be against each other until somebody attacks from the outside, and then they'll be together. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's well, it's true, but we can put anything else other than the true God, even even good things. You know, we can we can idolize our kids, and we can say, "Hey, if my if my kid is a straight A student, and my kid is you know starting quarterback on the football team, and then then I'll have happiness, and I'll have joy, and I'll have recognition, and then my life will be complete. And if those things don't happen, then we're angry and we're upset. And we're can I add something to that? Sure. That's true. That's true. I think it, it's all of the idols that we have flow from the sin in our heart and from the, uh, an unbelief in God. Um, I, th I think it's also appropriate to take some diagnostics sometimes and to look at, I mean, when we confess our sins every week in the worship service, you know, there's an attempt, I think, a, an opportunity for us to examine our hearts and say, how have I fallen short of the glory of God? am I putting above God? Um, how am I living in a way that's not in harmony with who he is and what the gospel says? Mm -hmm. I've heard once in a sermon that a great way to discern what your idols are is what makes you mad when it gets messed up, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, what are you hanging on to where that thing doesn't turn out you're angry about it? And that's a great mirror to our idols. And Well, and in all of this, uh, my overall point is that idolatry is not just some ancient sin that we don't really have to worry about. 
because I don't have a little temple to Dagon in my you know, yard. It's a modern thing. It comes from the heart. It's a worship issue. It's an obedience issue. And so when you're reading the scripture and you find these prophets who are always railing about idolatry, I think before we just go, oh, well, glad we don't have that problem anymore, I think we need to kind of go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, maybe there is some idolatry in my own heart, and maybe that idolatry is, is expressing itself over here or in this way. Or what are, What's making me upset? What's making me angry? What's making me fearful? Uh, where am I? What do I think about? When I have nothing to think about, you know, when my mind is just sort of drifting and I'm on a walk, what's the first thing that's coming into my mind? And maybe, I'm not saying it necessarily is, but it's possible that that thing is the source of your ultimate hope and your ultimate joy and your ultimate satisfaction. That's idolatry. All right, we'll jump in. We got to go quick because we're almost out of time. All right, another sin that's famously singled out is the sin of religious formalism. The people were worshiping God, but they were just going through the motions. There's Mr. Bean trying to stay awake in church. Have you seen this video? It's very funny. You should watch it. Mr. Bean is a comic treasure. All right, I'll read this one. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So again, worship is not a matter of going through the motions showing up in a building during the worship hour on Sunday. Though that's important, it's about our heart. Okay, next theme is grace. Even though Micah pronounced God's judgment against sin, the book of Micah is filled with hope. After sarcastically observing, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher to this people. We read this. Micah 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a flock, in a, in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Sometimes the church feels like a noisy multitude of men, does it not? He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it, their king passes on before him, them, the Lord, at their head. God likens his people to sheep who are led by a shepherd who is both the king and the Lord. Now, who do you think Micah was talking about? The shepherd who is the king and the Lord. He's talking about Jesus, who said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In chapter 4, Micah talks about the mountain of the Lord. He says that all peoples will flow to it, and many nations will worship God there. I'll read uh, Micah 1, verse, 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the, of the Lord shall be established as the highest in the mountains, and it shall be fill, lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make, make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's the word of hope that God speaks to the idolatrous, rebellious, uh, heart far away from God, people of Israel. That God will bring us back home. That God will restore us through this shepherd king. Okay, well, we talked, there's a little bit uh, in there about the uh, exile, a prediction of the return from the exile, Babylon. Uh, that happens later on in the story. We're, we're skipping ahead a little bit. In Micah 5, Micah predicts the shepherd king would come from Bethlehem. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Now, did that happen? It did. It's in Matthew 2. It's Jesus who is the shepherd king who was born in Bethlehem, who fulfills the prophecy here of Micah. All right. Book of Micah concludes with a hopeful, hopeful note, chapter 7. According to Micah, God will pardon iniquity and pass over judgment, casting our sin into the depths of the sea. Somebody read this, and we'll close, close with this one. Micah 7, verses 18 and 20. Now, we'll conclude with this as we look forward to Jesus. Um, we are all idolatrous people. We are all people who do not care for the poor as we should. We are people who see injustice, the strong, taking advantage of the weak. And often, our response is little to nothing at all. And so, we find ourselves in the same predicament as the people of Israel. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a shepherd king, one who was born in Bethlehem, the smallest town and the smallest tribe of Judah, who rises up to become the great mountain of the Lord, leading all of God's people from every nation, including us, because we were not part of the original uh, chosen people of Israel. We are led to the mountain of God 
where there is justice, where there is peace, where there is mercy, where there is grace through Jesus, our good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. And so as we read all of these beautiful uh, passages of, of scripture in the book of Micah, we can know that these things will come to pass, they will come to fruition when Jesus comes in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And they can begin to come to fruition even now and in, in a small, imperfect way in the life of the church as we walk with him together. <coughs> Amen? Amen. It's time to go. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Micah uh, and the controlled chaos that is this book. Lord, we, uh, we know that that is a very accurate reflection of our own hearts. We are often uh, discombobulated and anxious and worried and afraid. We thank you for Jesus who makes us whole. And we thank you for this book. We thank you for the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in worship.